what happens when the most inept and horned up police force find themselves in over their heads after a trip to the Blue Lagoon? Well, before you think Steve Gutenberg will show up and save the day, guess again, because we're not that lucky. No, instead we take on the monumental task of trying to prove to you that Samurai Cop is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, I've mentioned before that on this show, we kind of like a bit of a challenge, but I don't think we have had as much of a challenge on this show since the episode where we talked about Jim Cotta, because this week we are talking about Samurai Cop. We knew this day would come. We knew this day would come, and it's finally here. And here to join in the celebration of all that is Samurai Cop is our good friend, Sean Faust. Sean, welcome to the show for the first time. How are you doing, man? I'm great, man. I'm excited to be here to make my debut on your show with arguably one of the top three So Bad It's Perfect movies. Oh, the... There's a pantheon of films in that kind of so bad it's good. I mean, I've seen a lot of comparisons to The Room when it comes to this movie. Um, but as far as the it's so bad it's good films, where does this rank for you? This is number three for me, with uh, number one being tied with The Room and Miami Connection. And if you tell me that The Room is so bad it's good, I got to tell you, uh, to this day, I find nothing bad about the room. I think it's exactly what it should be. I don't know what that thing is that it should be, but it exactly is that. And I'm entertained every time I watch it. Uh, Sometimes I want to talk along with the dialogue and say it as it happens, but I don't want to ruin that, that delivery that is just so perfect that makes the room just this special... Uh, it's oh I you know I can't even find the proper adjective to define how much I really love the room and don't think it's a bad movie but in the grand scheme of so bad it's good samurai cop is a solid number three I I'll, I'll admit that when the initial idea for this podcast kind of came to be there were a couple of movies that were on my list where I'm like I know I'm gonna have to go down this road eventually samurai cop was definitely on the list i know the room is is going to be another one of those future episodes um which i find kind of funny too because anyone who knows samurai cop also knows that there is a samurai cop 2 that also happens to star tommy wiseau so it's almost like is this the cinematic universe of the room and if you think about it that way i'm kind of excited for it then tommy wiseau's the villain in Samurai Cop 2 has to be Johnny in Purgatory or, you know, Johnny somehow survives the gunshot, uh, the self-inflicted gunshot at the end. Spoiler for the room. Sorry, folks. <laughs> and uh, because if you keep in mind, too, he does shoot himself, but you see his body move after he shoots himself. Therefore, Johnny is probably still alive and he's pissed off. Maybe they're blanks. Maybe he is so angry at uh, Samurai Cop that, uh, what's Samurai Cop's name? Joe... Joe Marshall. uh, Joe Marshall, that's it, yeah, Joe... I always forget because they keep calling him Joe Samurai or Officer (laughs) Samurai. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and Bai Ling. We can't forget that Bai Ling is also in the sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I really hope... I haven't seen it yet, but I hope that she makes some comments about liking people's eyes. Because the only big budget movie I can think of that she had been in is The Crow. Mm-hmm. So you've got the villains are Bai Ling... And I guess they couldn't get Michael, I can't remember his last name, but he's such a damn good actor. He was the villain in The Crow. Mm-hmm. Oh, I he loved was him. He was born, great. Uh, strange days. But Well, anyway, yeah, mm-hmm. they couldn't get him. And uh, yeah, so uh, I would love to see a Samurai Cop 2 at some point when I have time. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll make you this promise right now that if you are willing to go down that road, uh, we will cover Samurai Cop 2, Deadly Vengeance, in a future episode because I, having seen the trailer for that, you know, you've got a lot of the original cast. You've got, like you mentioned, Bai Ling, Tommy Wiseau, and a bunch of mattress actresses. Um, that would be, I, I would go down that road. I am willing to take that take that journey with you, and uh, I can't believe I'm just signing up for that one. But that might be a future episode. But we are here to talk about the original Samurai Cop. So before we talk about this um, classic, and you can kind of hear the quotation fingers there, we're going to take this movie and trailerize it. Take the guerrilla filmmaking style of the '70s video game music soundtrack of the 80s, and a budget that makes canon films look extravagant, and you have a 90s movie. Uh, wait, 90s? D- did I read that right? This came out in the 90s, huh? Okay then. You have a 90s movie that looks to break the mold by looking nothing like a 90s movie. Enter Joe Marshall. A cop so legendary, his backstory needs to be explained twice. A highly cultured man of mystery who speaks Japanese so fluently that he never speaks a word of Japanese. A man so highly skilled in the ways of the samurai, he punches his way out of every situation. And a cop so suave. That his every attempt to get laid is so pathetic they can be featured on disasters caught on camera. Robert Zadar and Matt Hannon star in Samurai Cop, a movie so powerful it can make you believe that every student film you made with a high eight camera look better in comparison. Unrated because no one stuck around long enough to get. <laughs> I think you nailed it. I think so. I think that's pretty much better than the trailer that was actually out. Um, let's go through who's in this guy. This stars Matt Hannon, who nowadays goes by Matthew Caratus in his second ever film. Robert Zadar, Mark Frazier, Melissa Moore, Gerald Okamura, and Janice Farley. Now, those names probably don't mean anything to our average listeners. So let me go through where you might have actually seen some of these people. Robert Zadar, we mentioned him uh, last week actually on the show because he, of course, was in Mobsters. Uh, but he was also in Tango and Cash and Cherry 2000 with a young Melanie Griffith. Uh, so there are movies that I've actually heard of on his filmography. Um Interestingly enough, when it came to Matt Hannon slash Matt Kaderis, or Kuretis, um, this was his last film 
until Samurai Cop 2. Uh, he did have a role as a Serbian soldier in an episode of Jag in 1995. But here's the thing. Um, he actually spent time in prison for armed art theft robbery. So there's a reason why we didn't see him for a while. Uh, he's out now. And it, the funny thing is he's on Twitter and he kind of embraces the whole samurai cop thing. So like kudos to him for that one. Uh, Mark Frazier actually had an uncredited role in Once Upon a Time in America starring Robert De Niro. Melissa Moore, uh, who played Peggy, uh, starred in Sorority House Massacre 2. And as I'm going through her filmography, I'm like, okay, I might have heard of that one. And that's about it. Cameron. This is all she's listed as Cameron, the redheaded assassin, uh, real name, Roberta Jean Oppenheimer, um, Star Trek fans are going to be very familiar with her because she was listed as Ensign Kellogg in about 43 episodes of Star Trek, the next generation. And she was also, uh, frequently used as a stand in for Gates McFadden, and I can kind of see that a little bit. Uh, she was also in Generations of First Contact, but she also did some stunt work on Pulp Fiction. So, so far, we're looking at possibly the most accomplished actor on this entire crew, until you get to Gerald Okamura, who also starred in Big Trouble in Little China uh, as the, and I'm quoting this from, ID, from IMDB, he is credited as the Wing Kong Hatchet Man, he was also in Hot Shots Part 2 as the corrupt kickboxing ref. He had uncredited roles in Mortal Kombat, Blade, um, and he was also the hardmaster in G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, which in my opinion is actually the best G.I. Joe film, of which I never thought I'd say that. You know, I'm going to have to go ahead and... I don't think there is yet a good G.I. Joe film... I mean, if, if we're grading on a curve of the three, between Snake Eyes, um, the the second one, and then Rise of Cobra. Oh, shoot. You know, I still have not yet seen Snake Eyes, but no, I, I will still also go back to the 1987 G.I. Joe, the movie. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah the, which introduces Serpentor and Cobra. La, 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 la. So stupid. Yeah. So stupid. Uh, Don Johnson's credit of shame on his filmography. <laughs> Flint. <laughs> there, there is actually someone who is a very accomplished actor on this movie um, and unfortunately I don't even think it was his voice when they did the ADR and that was Warren Stevens listed as the man in the film lab which that film lab scene just showed up out of nowhere um, he was in and now this, is a, this is quite the list here Stroker Ace The Barefoot Contessa Forbidden Planet he was in episodes of ER Twilight Falcon Crest Quincy M.E., MASH, Mission Impossible, The Virginian, Bonanza. Like, the list goes on. His filmography was huge, and they didn't even really use his voice, which I find just, uh, shake my damn head on that one. Um, this was the only film for Janice Farley, who played Jennifer. And when it came to Cranston Kumura, um, he only appeared in Samurai Cop films. So, I mean, there's your backstory as to the kind of cast you're dealing with here. This was written and directed by Amir Shervin. This was the last film he would ever write or direct. And he passed away in 2006. This is it. This is the swan song. This is the curtain call for Amir Shervin. Um, when you... 
when when you <laughs> when you put it that way, it's just like oh oh. Um, but when you realize that he's an Iranian filmmaker and he came over to the United States to make some Hollywood movies, you know, there's something sweet about that. But you know, this is kind of you know, this is it. This was his legacy, according to IMDb. This film did not have a budget listed. And I've seen enough interviews with Matt Hannon where he said, like, yeah, they were probably running out of money. Has a worldwide gross of $384,000, almost three hundred eighty-five. No budget was listed. And I wonder how much of that is in, like, midnight review showings kind of thing. Like, where it's the kind of stuff that theaters that would show movies like The Room and late night showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'm just curious. Did you ever see this in the theater? I have not seen it in the theater, uh, and a friend bought the Blu-ray for me a few years ago after I fell in love with it on Amazon. I could see this being the kind of movie where they do show this in like late night, you know, midnight showings. I mean, actually, I would love to see this as like the. There are some drive-in theaters uh, that are still out there today where they'll do like on a summer night they'll do four movies, so you're playing movies right until like the sunrise. And if this was the last movie, I, I would I would be awake for this one. Absolutely. Most definitely. <laughs> but what would the other three be besides... All right, so you got The Room Miami... Oh, you know what? Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Right. So we've got... Let's just do a, um, a festival. We'll call it a, a film festival of, of this wonderful writer-director. So we've got Hard Ticket to Hawaii. We have Samurai Cop. You know, no, but we we could also throw in Samurai Cop too, mm-hmm. and then just just for the hell of it, something with Robert Zadar, like maybe Tango and Cash, because oh, you know I love Tango and Cash though. Tango and Cash is like a guilty pleasure of mine. Like I, why is it a guilty pleasure? I hate that phrase, and let me tell you, why I hate that phrase. When you say guilty pleasure, you're saying you give a crap what other people think about things that you enjoy. They don't pay your bills, nor do they wipe your butt, my friend. You can say that Tango and Cash is just a great movie from beginning to end, even some of that stupid crap in the middle, but. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I, no I would actually put it up in my top five Sylvester Stallone films, right up there with Oscar. But that I mean that's just me. Oscar is just a gem. Um, let's well, stop. <laughs> my mom will shoot. Oh God! Well, that, I mean that's Estelle Getty right there. That that that's not that's not a Stallone film. That's an Estelle Getty film. That, Do that's, you know that that is um, that's a prank on Stallone by Schwarzenegger? Really. Yeah, Schwarzenegger had it out there because Stallone and Schwarzenegger used to try to go after each other's roles because they really were in that kind of a competition. And somehow it got to Stallone that Schwarzenegger was going to do this movie. It was going to be really huge. So he's like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll undercut him and I'll take, the, uh, I'll take the gig. And then he got the gig, read the script, and regretted it immediately. And then he found out it was a joke. Oh, God. Yeah, talk about a great prank. I love that. I, I now, now I have to watch that movie again just to see what his acting was like through that film, knowing what he was dealing with. But he got to work with Estelle Getty, so that's okay. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Let's talk about the critic reception on this one. I found this fascinating quote by Jim Varel in Paste. All right. The quote is this. The whole thing looks like a movie aliens would make if they were lacking some sort of crucial understanding of how human beings communicated with one another. (laughs) I'm not good. I, I might actually agree with that one because arguably the, the toughest thing with this movie is the script and the dialogue. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with that because most of the best responses are from Frank just kind of doing facial tics, especially the scene with the nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, um, the sergeant does have the best dialogue. Also, he's the best actor in the film. And I do call it a film, not a movie, because I, I do think that there was some heart put into this and it was bound to be something better had it had a budget <laughs> I, I would be curious what to see if, if they if they had golden globus money because i mean that's kind of the the error that you're looking at if they had golden globus canon films money it probably would be probably more akin to what like american ninja was uh back it only would have been another 500 600 added to their budget though at this point because mm. masters of the universe pretty much used up everything of theirs oh. but yeah, if they had some Golem Globus money, just think, what would the soundtrack be like? Because you look at things like Breaking, we, we could have had Stallone in it possibly instead of instead of Matt. Possibly. Yes, yeah. Well, especially when you realize that Matt was Stallone's bodyguard back in the 80s. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Good um, point. Let's talk about the critic rating, though. Uh, there is a 47% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes out there and while that may seem high there there is a fan base for so bad as good movies there is no official tomatometer because there is only three critic ratings on this so i pulled up my calculator i got my slide rule out i did some math here if you take the three critic ratings that are there two of them are one out of five reviews so you can take a look at that and say okay well that's 20 percent each with one of them being a zero to five so that's a zero obviously so do with math included that sits at about a 13 percent tomatometer which makes this actually one of the higher rated films that we have talked about on this show um if you're a critic what are you rating this i'm gonna give this uh, let's see i would have to say honestly i would say about three and a half out of five stars Okay. For for reaction shots alone, and for arguably some of the best death acting in cinematic history. 
nothing will top Paul Rubens in Buffy the Vampire Slayer for that death scene that went on and on and on through about the entire second third of the film. Um, and the post credit scene. Right? Oh, that, one of the best post credit scenes, too, from that era. Um, but let's get to the breakdown of this film. And we have to start with Joe Marshall himself, Matt Hannon. Um, look. I get that this is only his second film, um, so I'm, I'm not going to pick on anyone's acting because even if I did, uh, it's still a world's better acting job that I could ever do. Apparently, the story is he walked into their office to to audition and Amir took one look at him and said, you are exactly what I'm looking for. And I kind of don't disagree with this because when you think about you know, someone who's supposed to be a samurai and a cop and around that that era of filmmaking, he fits the mold perfectly. Yes, he's got he's got the Martin Riggs look, so he's got that familiar look, but he's also kind of bulkier. So he's got that I've been training really hard on stuff and have muscles. I can hold a sword. And if you look at him, look at the way he holds a gun and fires a gun or the way he holds a sword. He just looks right. Obviously, in like late 80s, early 90s, he had that WWE physique, and in some cases, even better. Like, if you put Matt Hannon, you know, that 1991 Matt Hannon, besides someone like the million dollar man Ted DiBiase, I'm like, yeah, Matt Hannon's going to wipe the mat with him. He was an imposing figure, and had this been a good movie, I could see it of actually being one of those things that catapulted him not into stardom, per se, but at least in enough action movies to make a really good go of it. And I get, we need to talk about something here. We need to talk about the wig. I said this morning, and I'm sorry to interrupt you with this, but the the very first shot we get of him is a reshoot with this wig that they couldn't even eh, cut properly, I should say. With, with the hat almost like stapled on, like the hat that was too small for the wig. Um, so for those of you who have not seen it, when they were filming this film and they, they would film it in like chunks kind of thing because I guess money was an issue in trying to get this whole thing filmed. And then they took a long break and Matt thought like, oh, okay, we're done. We're done. We're done filming. It's all good. It's just going to go to post. And then he shows up like a week later and he had gotten his hair cut. And, you know, Amir's like, what, what the hell did you do? You ruined my movie. So apparently they got in the car, drove down, to, drove to like downtown, got a wig, a woman's wig that was close enough to his hair color and started to put it on. There are scenes, there's a fight scene in this film. <laughs> yes. With... With, with Akamura and he the, the wig falls off and like Akamura puts it back on his head and it made the cut like that is and and the hair grows and 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 shortens within the same scene and part of that is the way it was filmed because apparently a lot of the um a lot of like the the one-liners of dialogue and all that they had to go back and reshoot was shot in a completely separate room like months later. So scenes like in the Blue Lagoon restaurant, which I laughed at the fact they called it the Blue Lagoon, um, the the cutaways of like Frank and 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 Joe aren't even they're they're at like Amir's house. 
Like he's not even in the same place and he's wearing the wig in one. He's not wearing the wig in the other. So, you know, if you're playing spot the wig, this is a fun game. And if you see the wig, by all means, take a shot. Samurai Cop will be a much more of a fun movie that way. Um, but I mean, I have to give him kudos for, you know, wearing this clearly obvious wig in ways that make it clearly look like a wig, yet still putting his all into the film. That's dedication to a role, folks. 100% dedication to a role. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have seen interviews with him after the fact. Uh, there's a phenomenal two-part interview on YouTube uh, with Red Letter Media, and he's talking about how, you know, during those reshoots and whatnot, um, you know, he, he was kind of pissed at this point. Like, he, he'd kind of mentally given up on the role. Um but I mean, I'll, I'll give him full credit. There's there's scenes in this where I think he's really good in this. One of those ones is when he's sitting down uh, with Jennifer at dinner and he's talking about how he like climbed over the fence to, to steal someone's chicken and he, you know, because he really wanted to impress her. And I'm like, you know, say what you will about this film, but he's actually kind of charming in that scene. There's that, and then there's when Jennifer jumps into the pool holding her nose and goes, well, that looked really professional. There, there are parts where it looks like they're having fun. I mean, I, I, I fully understand. Like, I, going back to the fight scene with Akamura, okay? Let's put it down on Front Street. Gerald Akamura is a, a fifth-degree black belt in Kung Fu Sansu, okay? This guy knows what he's doing, Right. And in watching that interview with Van Han- with Van Hannon about this, um, Amir apparently was saying, like, you know, oh, don't worry, I'll make you look good in post. Which anyone who says I'll fix it in post, um, don't do that to your editor. Please don't. Uh speaking as an editor, don't do that to your editor. Okay? Fix it in pre. Fix it on location. But you know, for for him to like I, I guess he was a little intimidated by someone like Akamura's understanding of Bushido and Kung Fu and Taekwondo and the whole works, but damned if he didn't give it a good try. I didn't realize that he didn't know martial arts because of his dedication to this role. Mm. Well, I mean, like, there, there's one scene where, like, I, I guess he grabs Akamura's arm and all that, and he does this weird... Th- no, it was, it was in the fight with uh, Robert Zadar, and he does this thing with his fist where he sticks his thumb out in between the fist. I'm like, if you hit someone with that, you're going to break your damn thumb. He um, was going to grab his nose. He was going to take his nose. That's all that was. <laughs> That's it. That is literally the samurai move of, I've so, I've taken your nose. You must give yes. it to me now. I'm, I'm, I am I'm get it now. Uh, let's move on to Mark Frazier. Uh, Frank Washington in this. The most memeable person in this entire film. If memes didn't exist and they didn't in 1991, I'm sure some of the reaction shots that he gave in this probably gave idea to the, to, to the meme itself, because there are some, there, there are some takes to the camera that are just like, Oh, the nurse scene itself. My wife asked this morning, like, did somebody out there do a super cut yet of just his reaction shots? Um, not yet. Not yet, but I'm sure someone will now. Please do. When they were making this film, apparently, Matt and Mark were basically, you know, they were like, okay, I get it. It's kind of like a lethal weapon kind of thing. But rather than be a lethal weapon, and I could see how Matt Hannon was kind of going for that Mel Gibson, like, role in lethal weapon. But rather than be more like Donald Glover, 
Mark Fraser came off a little bit more like Jones from Police Academy with some of those well, looks. Donald Glover, I don't think was alive yet. I think you might mean Danny. Danny Glover, yes. Yeah, sorry, my bad. I hate to be that guy. I, I'm sorry, but I am that guy. So I don't really hate to be that guy. <laughs> that's so okay. I'm the I. idiot in the basement with the microphone, so that's okay. I own all my mistakes. It's all good. Fair enough. <laughs> well, you mentioned that it doesn't really go for Lethal Weapon, but there are two things I notice every time I watch this movie. And one is they steal an entire subplot from Lethal Weapon 2. And then years later, somehow Lethal Weapon 4 rips a bit of this movie off just with the, um, what the, what were the, the triads, mm-hmm. but then, you know, going into the guy's restaurant and harassing the guy at his restaurant is right out of Samurai Cop, but they used it for Uncle Benny in the fourth one. And the subplot from 2 was going after all the cops at their homes. Mm-hmm. Not, not to mention the fact that you had like, you know, it, 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 in Lethal Weapon 2, it was a South African crime syndicate as opposed to you know the the, the katana gang um you know I'm, you know what's funny i'm glad you mentioned lethal weapon 2 because stepping away from mark frazier for a second janice farley who played jennifer as i'm watching her in this and i actually quite enjoyed her in this um but she reminded me a lot of patsy kensett in lethal weapon 2 and i, I was really like when you see that parallel and you and you realize that lethal weapon might have been the template for what they were hoping to get out of this. Janice Farley did a very good job with this. She does a very good job of the character that she's playing now where you say she reminds you of Patsy Kensett in Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, she reminds me more of... Sorry, hold on. i got to look this up because it's, it's going to bother me now. Uh, Corin Burr who was Bob Goldthwaite's love interest in Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. Oh, God. A 0% movie, if ever there was one, and it is one. Um, Oh, no, that would be 5 and 6 and 7. Oh, no, Citizens on Patrol. I've looked this up. Citizens on Patrol also has a 0 rating. I must go and rate that so I can (laughs) help with the algorithm. At, At least... At least, you know, Police Academy 5 gave us a pre-married to Wayne Gretzky performance uh, from his future wife. Fair. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was Miami Beach, so, you know, it's all good. But, I mean, the thing with Janice Farley is that she she's clearly putting a lot into this role. And I think of everyone in this film, especially of all, all, the, all the women in this film, because, let's be honest, the roles for the women aren't exactly... Mm, evolved um hers actually isn't that bad her and her mother although her mother is kind of like the uh well he gives you money you should stay with him type um so maybe not maybe not the mother but yeah she's the only one that's not there um as a host for um samurai cops you know she's not there to keep it warm Mm -hmm. you should best film mom since the woman who played Meredith Salinger's mom in Dream a Little Dream. That's exactly who I was thinking of when you said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The- Piper Laurie. <laughs> oh, dear God. We we have just referenced Dream a Little Dream in a Samurai Cop film, and I'm kind of here for it. Um, let's, let's continue on with the women here. Uh, Melissa yes. Moore, uh, who played... Peggy. I mean, if this were Police Academy film, since we're making these re- these references here, she's Callahan. 
There's zero oh, question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She is the, the horned up cop and whatnot. And, um, possibly the template for what Amir may have, uh, done or at least written when, when writing the role of Peggy. Um, but I mean, it was funny. I mean, she, at no point did she like take anything too seriously. Um, you know, for lack of a better term, sex was just a thing for her. Um, you know, the fact that she was like, Hey preacher, we're not doing anything. You know, meanwhile, you're about to storm my house, but we're not doing anything. You want to, want to f- <laughs> like, seriously. Or, like, uh, you know, come to my place before they do that. Use it before you lose it. Right? <laughs> like, here is a very free woman who knows exactly what she wants. Um, I'm just curious, though. And I and I recognize that she appears in Samurai Cup, too. But I'm just wondering if, like, the whole, the whole post... Uh, torture from the you know from the burning grease scene if that was supposed to be because we never see from her her you know from her again so I I'm now I'm curious to see Samurai Cop two and what happened to her I'm here's my guess okay nothing it's gonna show no scars it's gonna be exactly like how Dar has Kodo and Podo again in Beastmaster two even though Kodo died killing Mayax to save Dar. See, it's either that or they're going to go full Fennec Shane and she's a cyborg, seeing how it's in the future and in space. Um, True. Fair. <laughs> I'm all for cyborg Peggy. That's all good. And then we need to talk about Cameron, the redheaded assassin. Um, <laughs> here's the funny thing. What was her role? Because aside from being um, hot redhead assassin, you know, uh, basically what was it Robert Sadar's side piece at that point because she didn't really do anything I wonder if there's deleted scenes of her just announcing the boss every time he shows up or if it's just that one scene of exposition right in the beginning where she's like here comes the boss and then that's one of four or five lines of dialogue she has the entire film I mean that's about as useful as the computer in Galaxy Quest which Sigourney Weaver would just repeat until she realized that she was doing the same thing and repeating the oh, well it's a stupid job but she's gonna do it right like even when they when they go talk to like the, the the other uh you know triad family or whatever and all that like everyone's fighting and everyone's shooting each other and she's just like I'm just gonna sit here and nod that's pretty much it also she doesn't understand how um, Uzi clips work. She shoots four shots and then changes a clip and then just gets shot dead anyway. Uh, clearly, the Yakuza budgets in 1991 are low and bullets cost quite a bit. But I mean, I was curious to see what they were going to do with her, if they were going to do anything with her. I mean, she had the look and because she was, uh, you know, she had done stunts for like Pulp Fiction, we knew that she was an athletic woman. I mean, they could have turned this into maybe, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a Black Widow role. I mean, the red hair is kind of a thing, but I mean, you know, or maybe someone like a Sharon Stone from Total Recall. That could have been an interesting, like where, you know, in the pantheon of expendable henchmen, she's actually one of the more lethal ones, but instead, you know, she goes out very, very quickly in the last gun battle scene. Like it felt like she was there for looks and she could have done so much more had it been written for her. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I think the main goal of her character was to completely interrupt a chase scene by disrobing. Pretty and much. And the chase scene gets incomplete. And you kind of like, if you're a 19, if you're a guy in 1991 watching this movie, you're 15 or 16 going, you forget that there's a chase because all of a sudden, like you said, beautiful redhead, 
Right. Who who was also an out for justice as a go-go dancer. Hmm. Oh, I, when, when you take a look at some of the filmographies, and, and that's the thing, like some of these actors do deserve quite a bit better and I think she would have done much better with a bigger role that like just a bit more mystique to her a bit more mystique and then have her be one of the you know if you're looking at a movie like this like a video game she's not she's not the big boss level you know that's Yamashita but at least you know a a level clearing boss that you have to kind of get by and you know the fact that they they kidnapped Jennifer to make Matt Hannon um, enraged kind of thing. If something had happened to, you know, the no-name redheaded assassin, that would have at least given a bit more motivation for Yamashita as well. Just kind of a missed opportunity, I think. But that's just me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Speaking of Robert Zadar, literally the only person I had really heard of before watching this film, um, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of impressed with how restrained he was because when you listen to uh people like Okamura and people like Fujiyama and and like and I fully recognize that some of their dialogue was actually done by other people in post as ADR because they didn't have the budget to bring those people in on time to do it uh, which <laughs> hey which, come here we want to talk <laughs> oh my god oh if, if if the sign of a movie is that it's quotable, but these are the lines that you're quoting, um, does that make it a good movie? That is the existential question here. Um, but Robert Sadar is very stoic in this. Like he's big, he's menacing, um, and you know that he's on that 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 razor wire of like I I'm going to sit here and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to menace you into doing what we want to do, or I'm going to finish you, and that's pretty much that. Fair enough. Pretty much every, almost every role he plays anyway. I kind Except, well, go on, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I kind of wish that they had made a Hercules film around that time, because he would have made a very good Hercules. He would have been great. It's a shame that he's, like, known for, like, these little B-movie roles that he's taken on, but, or, you know, Tango, it's also a shame that people don't understand the genius that is Tango and Cash, but he, he had the look, and like you said, he... He's reserved. He know he knows when to get loud. He knows even his stares. If you watch his stares in this movie, he needs to look menacing. He needs to look kind of angry. He needs to look really angry and menacing. He just needs to look like he's in the room mm-hmm. uh, or you know going back into a laundry basket. Oh my god, that scene! For those of you who have not seen this movie, there's this scene where where Cameron is is dressed up like a nurse to get into uh, the room where they're keeping the 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 the, the char baby burn victim to try to get to silence him from ever speaking again. Which coincidentally, if you notice that the room that they keep the burn victim in is right beside the dentist's office, so I'm questioning the hospital choices at this point. Um, but she's wheeling in this cart, saying like, "Oh, I have to go get the garbage." Lifts the blanket up, and up rises Robert Zadar, very, very slowly, very menacingly. But I'm just like, a, it's shot from high up, so he doesn't look as menacing as as could be because of the camera angle. And you know, some of the camera angles on this are just so bad. Just so bad. Uh, and considering what they framed on, uh, we will eventually talk about the giant lion's head at the Blue Lagoon office. We need to because I love the set design of that office. 
<laughs> but the the fact that he just gets up out of this 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 you know laundry linen thing from a hospital. Oh, he tr- and then he fillets that guy's neck like he's cutting sushi. It's just so slow and delicate to mm-hmm. remove somebody's head. Meanwhile, we're focusing on Cameron, who's looking at this like, oh, okay, yeah, I, yeah, I want, I want the side of the cake with the extra icing. That's pretty much her her reaction mm-hmm. on this one. Um, but he did, he brought a bit of gravitas to the role of Yamashita, um, probably more so this movie might have actually deserved, and and that's that's a credit to Robert Zadar, like just being an absolute pro in this. I agree one hundred percent. Let's talk about Fujiyama. The head of the Katana gang. Um, here's another person that I found was actually very well cast in this. And, you know, say what you will about this film. It makes sense that he's the head of the crime family because he's that, he's that head that doesn't want to do the dirty work himself. He doesn't, and he just gets everyone else to do it. He played that perfectly. I don't know why we needed the exposition to say, hey, he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to be tied to it, but whether he does it or not, he's tied to it. This is how the law works, guys. I mean, I will admit that some of the dialogue, I mean, from everybody really feels like descriptive video at times, but <laughs> like he he comes in, and then all of a sudden like, we cut to camera and say, here comes the boss, and it's like, oh, good, descriptive video. This is good. I don't actually have to watch it. Um, but, <laughs> but when you think about like th- those early nineties and I will admit I had a mullet back then, shamefully, I will admit that, um, trust me, there's no mullet happening now, but I mean, that was the look of bad guys in films in the early nineties. Like, like evil mullets and suits were, were the thing. And here he was fitting the role perfectly for the time, um, not overacting too too much um like he he made sense he absolutely made sense as the business boss of the katana gang well it would make sense that he would make dollars (laughs) oh man thank you for the courtesy laugh i appreciate it (laughs) um moving on to gerald okamura all right, uh, the, the the one guy who actually knew what he was doing when it came to uh, all the sword fighting and whatnot, because he's used on a number of films as a consultant for for that kind of stuff. Um, I have to say, when when you put someone, th- this surprises me because we mentioned that fight scene earlier between him and Joe Marshall, and how like he clearly knows what he's doing, and Joe doesn't. And you were surprised because you th- you thought Joe actually knew something about you know quote unquote being a samurai. Um, I wonder how much of how much of that training that Okamura did, um, perhaps you know before shooting, uh, was conveyed to him because he he um, maybe the the most I want to say imitating or intimidating because Robert Zadar was very intimidating. But next to Zadar, he was probably the most intimidating guy in the Katana gang. Especially as far as ability goes. Oh, I mean, and thank God he closed his, he locked his window so he didn't get jumped by Frank and Joe trying to climb in while he was, you know, trying to have sex. Uh, and then running around in his underwear. Uh, and cl- Or trying to learn how to have sex, then running around in his underwear um, past the centipede game how many times? Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. 
if if you're looking for titillation, this might not be the film you're looking for. It's um, yeah. PG-13 maybe with uh, PG sensibilities? Or is that the, the other way uh, around? Maybe that scene, um, but there's some R-rated stuff going on. Like We do see a lot more of our red-headed friend than you usually see in a film like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I would say uh, that was more of a... PG-1992, not a PG-1983, where you would see a lot more with him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, the fight scenes, I think, were better with him because, obviously, he's he's trained in that, so he probably would have trained the people he who he was fighting with. Um, so that brought a lot more to the fight scenes um, and clearly knows how to put a wig back on a head because it was that fight scene that the wig popped off and... Oh, you have. You to. don't even need to look for it. It'll just happen. You'll see it. And yeah. he's such a gentleman about it too. I'm going to beat the out of you, but I'm not going to take this wig off. Yeah, exactly. It's a, that that is the way. That is the Bushido way. We fight with our wigs on. <laughs> one one person I have to bring up in this one. His name is Joselito Rescobar. And I'm hoping I got that name right. Oh, my God. And I know exactly who you're talking about. Yep. The Costa Rican waiter. <laughs> what What a fantastic choice to make these acting decisions to be so flamboyant and just, uh, insanely flamboyant. Like, ooh, <laughs> he shot himself in the head. Like, this is getting the man erect. <laughs> Do you know who he reminds me of? You've seen Aeroplane. Yes. There's the one guy at the control tower, and and for the life of me, his his actual name uh, escapes me. But, like, you know, someone will say something, and then he'll walk in all flamboyantly and go, and someone is shaking. Like, looks like Leon's getting larger. Right? I can make a brooch, a pterodactyl, a hat. I know exactly who you're speaking of. Yeah, and I, w- I wonder if Joselito Rescobar actually looked at that role and said, I want to be that guy, because that's what he did. Now, I took a look at his IMDb, his filmography. There are five movies with Joselito Rescobar in them. The first four, of which Samurai Cop is one, all written and directed by Amir Shervin, the writer and director of this one. The fifth movie was made after Amir Shervin had passed away. It was Samurai Cop 2. So, oh, wow. So, oh, my God. Sold. Yeah. That's If there was one thing that would sell me on jumping on seeing Samurai Cop 2 any sooner, it is that gentleman. Right. Joselito Rescobar, the Costa Rican waiter. We don't care what his character's last name is. He's Costa Rican and would have taken forever, according to Joe Marshall. Maybe we'll find out his last name in his second movie. And it's probably twice as long as his first. Oh, more than likely. More than oh, likely. I'm so excited. I'm delighted to hear this. Oh, man. And, but that's the funny thing, too. Like, when you have filmmakers like, like this, uh, you see them, like, 
enjoying working with the same actors over and over again. Uh, we've talked about this on this show with you know directors like Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. You know the the work and Adam Sandler the work with your friends rule, uh, and it's clear that the relationship between Amir Shervin and Joselito Rescobar probably was that the work with your friends rule uh and if and knowing that backstory knowing knowing that he was in like four like four of his last films uh before passing away uh, makes that role a bit more bittersweet and kind of fun when you when you watch it so um you know kudos to the most flamboyant character of samurai cop <laughs> being the costa rican waiter um you're a musician I'm a musician. I like to think so. Yeah. I know you are. Yes, yes. We need to talk about this soundtrack. All right. Because I was wondering what PlayStation 1 game I was playing at the time when the music kind of came in. Um, as you're watching this, did, does the music fit for you or is it just one of those things where like, oh, dear God, they, so, someone pulled out the Nintendo and, and made it a soundtrack? The chase scene that gets interrupted by by some nudity and also a never completed chase scene nor completed love scene there's a lot of incomplete in this movie the music i i found myself focusing on it going wow like this is something i could actually hear dream theater covering as a goof (laughs) there there are times i'll admit there are times when jordan rudess's keyboard tone Sounds a little video game esque, and I and I love Dream Theater. Like I think Jordan Rudis is possibly the most talented keyboard player, you know, playing live music today. But Rick Wakeman is still out there, my friend. <sighs> yes, but I I don't listen to Rick Wakeman and all of a sudden think of all the Vince DiCola eighty soundtracks that I have watched in the past. You know, um, Vince DiCola is also still touring. There you go. Yeah, uh, but, but I agree with you about Jordan. Uh, very, very nice human being. One of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And yes, you're right about some of his sounds are very, uh, you know, Pac-Man. Or, but I'm thinking more specifically that little flute melody, that, that keyboard wannabe pan flute Zamfir Karate Kid 2 melody that's going on in the background over this... Uh, pretty progressive rock like I was kind of like all on board with that piece of music because I was only dreaming that Dream Theater was playing it the rest of the music it's kind of like when you you broke you know how you break the Nintendo 2 cartridge and maybe not Nintendo let's say Vectrex and the music just decided to want to be like, and that's the rest of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It's just, we're going to have a conversation now. It doesn't fit any scene except for that chase scene. Right. What, are, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I knew I was in for a musical ride when the, the title card comes up, like right off the beginning, and the music seems to cut in not on the one beat, not even on the end, the four end beat. Uh, by the way, if you're not a musician, uh, time signature is a big thing. The fact that it felt like they kind of, you know, they bumped the record 
at the start of actually recording the soundtrack for it and it kind of jumped in mid bar um it's just one of those things where i mean some of the music things are just just hilariously bad in in a uh, an 80s A team kind of feel where you know Robert Zadar will stand up to look menacing at the at, at the the table after after Joe like you know this is the Katana gang da 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 like oh god Oh God. You know, though, now that I think about it, and the way you mentioned that, can you imagine if Mike Post had scored this film? Right. How badass would that score have been? I love some Mike Post, sir. <laughs> the king of the 80s. I mean, up again, once again, up there with Vince DiCola. Like, when you think about Transformers the movie, when you think about Rocky IV, you know, those Vince DiCola instrumentals were, you know, that was 86, 87 right there. Oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And he did, uh, there was something else Decola did that I loved, and now it's just not coming out. Do you know that Decola sent a copy of his score for Transformers to Keith Emerson because Keith Emerson is the reason he was playing since, and it's a very ELP-inspired score, apparently, according to Mr. Vince Decola. Oh, wow. I mean... If you didn't have one of those Rocky training montage instrumentals in your head in the 80s, you weren't 80s, 80s in right. Um, but it, it definitely. Hearts on fire. Right. Oh, I love rock, the Rocky Four soundtrack. Like, I, listeners understand. Like, Sean and I both know the guys from, from Playlist Wars. Love those guys. They're great. You know, if they ever did a bad movie, great soundtrack episode. The Rocky Four soundtrack is getting hit hard. Like you know that hard. that movie would have it would not exist, nor would it have a soundtrack if you got rid of all the montages. Right? There there are an equal number of montages in that film, I think, than there were in Dream a Little Dream, and that's the second Dream a Little Dream reference we've dropped in this episode. Oh dear God! <laughs> Dream a Little Dream only has three that I can think of: Into the Mystic. Um, into the Mystic, which also sets off the story. This is not a Dream a Little Dream episode. Also, one of my top ten favorite films mm-hmm. and soundtracks. But yeah, like this. I mean, had this had, I'd be curious the kind of. I we need the Samurai Cop song, which Dave Matthews bands fans will sit there and say, "Well, there is a Samurai Cop song because he wrote a song called Samurai Cop." It has nothing to do with the movie. Apparently, when he wrote the song, Samurai Cop was just playing on a TV in the background, and the title just stuck. So, Dave Matthews Band has a song (laughs) called Samurai Cop, has nothing to do with Samurai Cop. The movie was just on in the background. It's actually quite a nice song. So, you know, kudos kudos to Dave Matthews Band for introducing many more people to Samurai Cop. Because you're sitting there listening going... Yeah, this seems to be one of those really nice songs. Everything's going well in life. And he's not mentioning anything about a samurai cop. I don't get it. I don't get it. Now you know. Now you know. I kind of want to hear like him just, you know, some of the dialogue. Do you like what you see? I love what I see. <laughs> Dave Matthews Band needs to actually do a theme song for an eventual samurai cop three. That would That would be... Just, I kind of want to just go back and rescore the first movie myself, but like more of a progressive rock, progressive metal, like Vince DiCola meets you know Train of Thought era Dream Theater. 
All performed by Spectre General. If you're getting a band from that, that oh, Kickaxe. The, the real name of that band is Kickaxe. Yeah. And I have I have uh, Welcome to the Neighborhood on vinyl, which has a great cover with a little help from my friends on it, the Joe Cocker version. Uh, obviously, it's their version, but yeah, there was something to do with the band name legally that they had to go as Spectre General on the Transformers soundtrack. Yeah, probably because you know Kickaxe sounds like Kickass, and it's a kids movie. I, I kind of get that. I do kind of get that. Um, but let's talk about one of the biggest things about this film, and that's the dialogue. How many times after this movie do you tell someone to keep it warm? I think I'm going to start. <laughs> uh, you keep it warm, all right? Because uh- <laughs> nobody's going to know what I'm talking about unless they've seen it. And then, you know, But then you're looking at like some harassment charges depending on where you say it and whom you say it to. So I'll start by saying it to just random people at the supermarket. Right. If someone comes back and says, creepy. If someone comes back and says it's warm and ready to go, run. Just run. Well, wait, 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 wait. Why? What if, what if I like what I see? Uh, What if if I'm thinking to myself, bingo. You know what I'm, where I'm going with that? Since you put it like that, we need to talk about the dialogue in the horny nurse scene. We have to because yes. because this is one of those scenes like this movie kind of flew under the radar for a bit and and then someone in the early days of YouTube put a clip of this movie up on YouTube and it is literally listed the horny nurse scene. Where did she come from? Where was she going? Why did she care so much on whether he was circumcised? Like it, there's just so much questioning and I I, I couldn't even. Like, I don't know if she was ever in any other films. Like, like it's it's just so out there. I mean, with her delivery versus his delivery, because he's all in on that scene. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those scenes where he's very much like, oh, yeah, I can act the shit out of this. And he's probably not even acting. He's like, oh, who's this woman hitting on me? Let me let me get every like quintessential 80s guy reply ready to go in the chamber, mm-hmm. keeping it warm. I need to draw a comparison for her delivery of the lines. I'm assuming you've seen Boogie Nights. That's one of my favorite films of all time. The first film that Dirk Diggler does. <laughs> yeah, I know where you're going. Right? And 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 Julianne Moore is sitting there at the behind the desk and like, I think I need to see your credentials. And she walks around and grabs us. This is a giant <laughs> like that. that <laughs> This is, that's the same delivery that you get. The only difference is that is a fictional porn movie and this is Samurai Cop. And she's saying this is not a giant enough Mm -hmm. Well, that's why doctors get insurance. Like, what? Who writes this down? But apparently that scene was as scripted. The, the 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 dining with chicken scene, apparently a lot of that is a little bit on the improv side, according to Matt Hannon. Wow. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, improv, huh? Improv. Wow. Well, but hey, the- don't worry. I got enough. Right. It's big. Uh, oh, no, he, he was a good doctor. Um. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, at two months, three months old, yeah. Oh, he's a yeah, great doctor. Absolutely, he, he was a good doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's interesting though because like that that scene, you know, in all fairness, that scene was a little on the wooden side. 
the dinner with Jennifer scene was a bit more relaxed. There's the scene where they're climbing. Well, sorry, Joe climbs over the fence and Frank goes <laughs> under the fence. And Joe goes like, why did you climb under there? I'm an undercover cop. And then, of course, Frank looks to the camera like, ah, ah. And it's I love in. every time Frank looks at the camera and he's just like, hey, I know you guys are watching this and taking this as seriously as I am. Right. But you know, I do have a speech prepared if you'd like to hear it. I would. Absolutely. Okay, well then here we go. Now I'm telling these son of a bitches that we respect the Japanese of this country who are honest businessmen. And yeah, this is the land of opportunity for legitimate business, not for death merchants who distribute drugs to our children through schools and on the streets. Now I'm telling these motherfuckers that if they continue killing our children to make their precious millions that they deposit in their secret Swiss bank accounts, counselor, before your last suit even gets off the court clerk's desk, I'll have their stinking bodies in garbage bags and ship them back to Japan for fertilizer. Got it? And you too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I mean, here, here's the funny thing. Like when you think about movies that came out around that time, right? And we're, we're talking like Lethal Weapon 2. Like there was a whole drug running thing that was like an underlying story. RoboCop 2. Like there were there was this like, you know, drug underground storyline. And this was, and I fully appreciate that, that um, this was around the quote-unquote war on drugs thing uh, that the American government was was really pushing at the time. Um, so I wonder how much of that speech was influenced by the other movies that came out around it. And I mean, I mean, I'll admit I'm a Canadian, right? So we didn't really have, I mean, we saw what we saw on the news kind of thing, but we, I, we don't know I personally don't know the the environment uh, that that surrounded that whole thing around that time. It was empty slogans, and I would like to jump on my pedestal for a few seconds here and say that if you need slogans and catchphrases to make decisions on anything, whether it's a purchase you make in a store or who's going to lead your country, you're an idiot and you should stay at home. Uh, but it was there was empty slogans like hugs not drugs um, dare, which I can't even remember what it stood for. But in 1994, there was a survey that showed it had zero percent impact either way. Uh, dare actually, I believe, stood for drugs are really excellent. <laughs> there, there was this war on drugs because I don't think the government was getting enough money as kickback from the big dealers. Yeah, it, it, it seemed like a lot of, you know, let, let's get the celebrities out there to say drugs are bad, and then you know they're going to go back to their trailer and do a whole load of cocaine. Um, oh, my God, yes. You look at the 80s, and you can see decisions pure, made purely under the influence of cocaine. And it's just, sometimes I feel like, man, I wish I was like 10 years old in the 80s, and I was a big cokehead, just to experience some of just the insane it happened around that time period. I'm glad I didn't, but wow, look at all these decisions. Like somebody said, hey, let's give this guy some money to make his samurai cop film, cocaine. But the funny thing is that speech happens and I don't remember seeing anyone doing drugs in the film or even making a drug deal. It's a film called Samurai Cop and I counted it. We saw our first sword half an hour in, I think. Except for no, except for that that one fight scene uh, when they go to try to, to put the muscle on the Japanese cops. But I mean, there's a severe lack of samurai going on in a film called Samurai Cop, especially when you realize that Frank Washington did most of the kills himself. Yeah, yeah. Oh man! But here's where I have to defend this film. 
and let's let's call it like it is here. It's poorly made. It's low budget. It's campy. It's it's it is. It's so bad. It's good. And when you think about what cinema is supposed to be, at at its most base, it's escapism. If you walk out of a film with a smile on and you, and you had a good laugh and you feel pretty good, it, then the film did its job. You walk out of Samurai Cop and you had a whole ton of good laughs because the film is that bad that it's actually good. You you remember it more than a middling high budget film because the scenes are that bad. It's a good time. It's an hour and a half that's actually a really good time because it is so transcendentally awesome in its badness. Yes and no. Because you mentioned earlier the set design in Jennifer's office. We have this wonderful abstract painting behind her desk. And as we move over, we see a bunch of books. Roots is very standout-ish. And then... The lion's head made out of yarn. Somebody said, hey, this looks perfect. Let's put this in this movie. Let's have this look for this office. Somebody's going to take this woman seriously. She has a yarn lion's head. She's got this beautiful abstract art behind her, and she read Roots. What else could you ask for? Not to mention the fact that they framed the shot so that lion's head was definitely in it. Like, this wasn't just background stuff. Uh, and again, watching that interview with Matt Hannon, like, apparently that is, they filmed it like a friend of Amir's house kind of thing, and they actually had that lion on their on their wall in real life. And they are like, oh, Somebody's kid cool. made it. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> kid made it, and they were like, oh, well, we've got to keep it up here. And... and <laughs> And they should, hopefully, I hope that kid kept going to school and stopped making lion's heads. I hope they stayed creative. Although, that being said, if my kids came home with that lion head, I would absolutely put it up on the wall of my office and be very, very proud of it. It was, it's it's kind of funny. It is kind of would funny. Would you buy a slew of books, though? Would you buy, like, a copy of Roots and whatever all, all those other books were and kind of get a bookshelf next to where you would put that lion's head? Oh, Absolutely. Good, 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 good. Because, uh, I mean, we're going for authenticity here. I, in fact, I would have two bookshelves, one on either side of the lion and a chair under the lion. So if someone came into my lion reading room, they would see me sitting under the lion's head surrounded by books. That is that is the ideal library at this point. This needs to now happen. I am kicking my 10-year-old out of the house and taking over his room and making that room into reality. Sorry, kid. <laughs> uh, what are the things, though? And we talked about the whole working with your friends rule about films is that it really felt like there was a good friendship between uh, Matt and Mark as they were filming this. Um, You didn't feel any tension amongst the actors. And the fact that a lot of them came back for Samurai Cop 2 almost 25 years later, that says a lot about at least the camaraderie on set. And I mean, you've seen bands and you've been in bands where and you, you know the rule right if the band is having fun on the stage the crowd is having fun mm-hmm. there's no question about that everyone looked like they were having fun in the roles especially matt and mark together oh hell yeah mm-hmm. 
Uh, actually, I would say Matt, Mark, and Dale Cummings, mm-hmm. who's the chief. Those scenes are all beautifully written, beautifully acted, especially by Dale Cummings. That guy is committed to that role, too. Oh, and how long he held that finger pointing at the door after Mark gave him the kiss on the head? Get back here, you mother... I feel like somebody shoved something up my ass, and it hurts, and I got to figure out how to get it out. <laughs> I have a club up my ass. <laughs> mm. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> if, oh. <laughs> I want that on a shirt now. I just literally want him leaning back in the chair with his eyes closed like he did at the end of that scene saying, there's a club up my ass, and I got to find a way to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the only person that will respond to that T-shirt is the person in the grocery store who says, yeah, it's warm and ready. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like literally, that, that that is the samurai cop mating call. Is that shirt with that with the chief on there with that look? Okay, Sean, it has come to that point that we do in every show. Who is your MVP of 1991s? And I can't believe it's 1991 samurai cop. Oh, it's without a doubt Dale Cummings as as the captain. I w- I'll admit I was surprised to find that that whole kiss on the forehead scene, which, uh, by the way, was was preceded by the Mark Frazier lick lip, looking straight at the camera, which mm-hmm. is uh, creepy as hell, but, you know, go ahead and go kiss your cop with a, with moist lips, um, which in, 20, in the pandemic era, not cool. Uh, but the fact that that <laughs> scene was apparently scripted that way. That wasn't an improv. That was apparently scripted. Um, so yeah, I can I can completely see. And yeah, like it, he wasn't the 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 corrupt police chief that was on the take from the Katana Gang. You know the fact that you know he was the very much the lethal weapon version of the police commissioner. Like when the backs are up against the wall, uh the commissioner's got your back or the chief has got your back kind of thing. So I can I can completely see that. But for me, my MVP is Mark Frazier, Frank Washington. Um the most memeable guy in this film had the absolute best lines. And if you were to take that film, give it a budget and remake it even in the same era and recast it, I still want him in the role oh, 100%, of Mark Frazier. 100%. Nobody else can do that. Oh, absolutely. Possibly, possibly a better cop sidekick than Danny Glover. I would go that far. Uh, see, now you got me splitting hairs here, and I don't want to make that choice, so I won't. <laughs> just I mean, because Danny Glover was just complaining about being too old, and you know that's like me after a gig. Well, uh, you Riggs, you son of a bitch! You know, he, he, it wasn't just being too old. Riggs was a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It, it does bear though. I I would be curious if you were to watch Lethal Weapon or Lethal Weapon Two back to back with Samurai Cop. It just you really have to wonder how many comparisons are there. Oh, the first time I watched this, I had a list of what was from Lethal Weapon 2 and 1, and then I had a list of things that Lethal Weapon 4 took from it. Mm-hmm. Like, There's if, a lot. If that's your template for making a buddy cop film kind of thing, you really couldn't do bad. And with a bigger budget, um, I think Samurai Cop could have been, you know, if not something special, 
definitely something that would have lived earlier on DVD and VHS. Um, but you realize that somewhere down the road, we're going to have to tackle Samurai Cop 2. Deadly I'm vengeance. all in. All right. We will find a copy of that. We'll watch it. And, and Sean, you got to go down that road. You got to go down that Samurai Cop 2 road. Uh, Just for the Costa Rican waiter. Right? The, the, the fact that Jose Lito Escobar is in that film... For that alone, not to mention uh, Bai Ling and Tommy Wiseau. Um, oh, I can't believe we're going down that road. But, Sean, thank you so much for for, for chiming in here with this film and for jumping on the show. Um, where can listeners find some of your music? Well, thank you for having me on your show to interrupt you every now and then with... Uh my thoughts that I felt were more important than yours in that moment, which I never felt that my thoughts were more important than yours, but it's very rude to interrupt people, so people do not take a cue from me. <laughs> Be a better guest. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Sean Faust. You can find my music at SeanFaustMusic.com, but what I would really like to promote is the album Land by Money for the Toll. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, Anywhere you can stream and purchase music, you will find Land by Money for the Toll. Uh, Progressive rock, hard rock. I'm really, really, really proud of this album, and I just want everybody in the world to own a copy of it because, you know, I'm that proud of it. And if it turns out 10 years from now that that's my the room, I'll be happy. But it's not. It's better than that. I'm, I'm now curious if there is an album out there that could be considered the room of albums. Is it Chinese Democracy from Guns N' Roses? You know what? That's the first album that came to mind. Same. That is absolutely the first album that came to mind. Even though I don't mind Madagascar as a song. Um, but yeah, that is, that is absolutely the first album that came to mind. That's kind of scary. Okay, Sean, thank you so much for this. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you know the drill. If you think there's a movie out there that is unfairly maligned or you think is so bad, you know, kind of like this one, uh, that there is no way in hell that we can find anything good to say about it. Hit me up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast. We will dissect it. We will watch it lovingly and painfully and find the good things to say because we are looking for those A grades in B movies. Sean, thank you once again for this. To our listeners, thank you. Until next time, I'm Jay. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.